Well, continuing our series this morning, The Con, and looking at the lies of Satan. Lindsay, I'm going to need some help. Yeah, I've pointed it 16 directions and it's, uh, I'm afraid I've got a, my, my device is going to be unhelpful this morning, but that's okay. We will manage. But the con, and we've been the past two weeks and we continue today and next week uh, unpacking some of the most common lies of the enemy, some of the most effective lies of the enemy, and looking at how the devil, how Satan uses those lies to make us think certain things about ourselves. Certain things about our relationship with God. Certain things about our own relationship to sin. And that said, I want us to begin this morning looking at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. This is uh, a section, uh, your Bible might have something that says, a heading that says something like instructions for Christian living. And he begins, verse 17, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now church, look back up there at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. If you'll remember two weeks ago, in part one of this series, we looked at James chapter 1. Because if you ask, where does sin come from? You could say, well, sin comes from temptation. But James tells us, reminds us very clearly, that temptation actually begins by the desires of our what, church? The desires of our hearts. That temptation is only effective because we desire certain things in our hearts already. And if we did not desire those things, then the temptation that is put before us would have no effect on us. But it's because we want certain things in the first place. 
that temptation can be effective in leading us toward sin if we give in to that temptation. And so Paul, writing to the folks in Ephesus, and therefore writing to us today, you know, reminds them that it's our, our deceitful desires and that we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on this new self. And that is the self we put on when we make the decision once and for all to be baptized into Christ. And so that brings us to lie number five in this series. He won't forgive that. Because I cannot tell you the number of times I have talked to people over the years. 14 years that I've been in full-time ministry, but even in the years before that, when I was active in various church settings. And the number of people that were struggling with something and struggling with coming to understand that Christ shed enough blood on the cross for that sin as well. And church, we got to help people around us understand that their sins can be forgiven. Now, some of you have been listening to me preach and teach here in Hohenwald for 10 years almost. Now, there are two examples that I, without fail, that I come back to. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. About wonderful examples of men who had committed sin that God was willing to forgive. Audience participation time. Don't be afraid. Who is my Old Testament example? David. Absolutely. Yeah. I come back to David again and again. A man after God's own heart. Pictured here playing his lyre. Singing one of the psalms that he wrote most likely. But we think about that chapter of Samuel that opens in the springtime when kings are off at war. And David was back at the palace. And he was having trouble sleeping. And so he takes a walk out onto the terrace. Terrace. And so if you know the story, you know what happens from that point on. It begins with lust, the desires of his heart, and then adultery, and then it goes to premeditated murder, and then comes the cover-up, deception, lies. But David, when confronted by Nathan, who was essentially his preacher declared, I have sinned against God. He repented of his sin. All that he did, and yet God could forgive all that. So if you're here this morning, and you've lied, God can forgive that. 
If you're here this morning and you know what it's like to lust, God can forgive that. If you're here today and you've committed adultery, God can forgive that. If you're here today and you've committed premeditated murder, man, I hope not. But God can forgive that. And then in the New Testament... You might remember my New Testament example. Say it louder. Paul. Yeah. Okay, not as many responded on that one. Thanks, Tom. Good to have you back with us, man. But yeah, we think about the stoning of Stephen. Someone that we are told in the book of Acts that when they move him into this servant role, That Greek word that we now get the word for deacon. And they move him into the servant role and we are told that this is a good guy. That he is upright. And that he goes beyond the role that he was asked to take on. Because he is asked to take on a role where he makes sure that certain people are fed. And that no one is overlooked in the what they call the daily distribution of food. That there were, there were widows that needed to be taken care of. But then we find out that he's spending some time teaching and preaching. And some people didn't like what he had to say. And so you read in the book of Acts and it's a... Man, he, he lets them have it. I mean, he, he preaches to them. He preaches the gospel... And some of these Jewish leaders, they cannot stand the fact that after everything that they had to go through to get rid of Jesus once and for all, that it's still going on. People are still talking about this guy, this Jesus of Nazareth. What is the big deal? And so there they were, stoning Stephen to death. Stephen, with enough love in his heart to say, God, do not hold this sin against them. And then we find out that there's a guy named Saul. Not the Old Testament first king of Israel, Saul. No. This was a very zealous Pharisee named Saul who thought he was doing the right thing by standing there giving approval to a righteous man being stoned to death. And that he would go on to persecute Christians, men and women, we read in the book of Acts. That he's rounding them up. And then he has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life is never the same. Why church? Because yes, God can forgive that. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Let us, church, 
be people who understand what our weaknesses are and that our weaknesses are overcome by the power of Christ. And then we look further in Ephesians 4, picking up now with verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Paul giving that advice there that says, don't let anger fester. That, I mean, you know, work it out. Don't let it keep going. Verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's evil intent. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That church family... If we can learn to live like that, oh my goodness, what a bright light we would be for those around us. Amen? Yeah. Paul giving these wonderful instructions. You're stealing? Don't steal. Go to work. Work with your hands. Learn to do something. And then earn a wage. And then, you handle that responsibly, you're going to have a little extra. And with that extra, you can take care of the needs of someone else who's going through a rough time. Looking after someone else, sharing, taking care of the needs of others. He's saying, be responsible for yourself. You're somebody who's known to use foul language. He says, don't do that. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth any longer, but only those things that are good. Those things that are words of encouragement. Words that can be used for building one another up. That that's the kind of person you need to be. Very clearly calling us into the holiness that God desires for us. But that brings us back to lie number six. You are the only one. That's what the enemy tells us, doesn't he? Some of us, he says, you're the only one. You're the only one who does that. You're the only one. That sin is unique to you. You are the only one. Why does he want us to believe that, church? Because if we think we're alone in something, if we think for one moment that we're the only one, what is the last thing we're going to do? Confess it to someone else, right? We talked about that last week. 
James 5, confess your sins one to another. We talked about how when we confess our sins to someone else, that that sin no longer has any power over us. That sin has now seen the light of day. But yet, if the enemy is convincing us that we're the only one, then the last thing we're going to want to do is confess that sin. Because we think, we buy into that lie that the person we're confessing to is going to be shocked. That the person we're going to be confessing that to is going to say, Wow, you're a weirdo. You got it bad. Nobody ever does anything like that. And of course, the truth of the matter is, the person we're confessing to might very well say, Yeah, I understand completely. Because I've struggled with that as well. We look in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. I normally use this verse and use that last two-thirds of it to talk about that part that whenever we're tempted, there's a moment where we're making a choice that God always gives us a way out. I use this first verse to remind us that when we sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. That it's on us. But church, today I want to look at that first part. That no temptation has overtaken you except what is what, church? Common to mankind. Paul writing to the folks in Corinth and saying, listen y'all. That stuff that you deal with, those temptations that you deal with, they're more common than you think. Those temptations that you've given into are common to other people around you. Don't think for one second that you are the only one struggling with that. Because Satan so desperately wants to isolate us from the brothers and sisters around us wants to isolate us in thinking that what we've done is unique to us and that it can never be forgiven. And scripture tells us clearly that those are lies. That that is not true. In the town of Gurdon, Arkansas there is something called the Gurdon Light. And there is some folklore that goes around the Gurdon Light that uh, not terribly uh, different from the ghost of Chapel Hill. For any of you that may have ever uh, heard of the ghost of Chapel Hill or for any of you, okay, any of us, that might have actually made a, a trip over to Chapel Hill, Tennessee and walked those railroad tracks. And, and uh, yeah, it was a merry band of Christians that one Saturday night that ventured over there. We, of course, made a stop at True Love's Pizza and Grits uh, on the way because, you know, table fellowship is important when you're going to go ghost hunting. Uh, but... The reason I bring up the Gurdon Light is I was talking to someone this week who grew up in Arkansas and who walked that particular set of railroad tracks and 
they could see the light, and the light comes on, and the light goes off. And there's lots of theories about what the light is. I even went to Google Maps and found out, because I thought, well, I wonder if somebody's pinpointed. Yep, they sure, they did. Somebody said, this is where the Gurdon light can be found. And then you look at the reviews, and there's not that many, but 10 or 11 or so. And then people saying, man, this was one creepy night. You know, this was, I saw, I, I didn't believe it. I went out there for myself. I saw the light, and man, that is some weird stuff. Now, Gurdon, Arkansas, kind of in the southwest part of that state, sits on... Uh, sits on uh, a, uh, I don't, the word is escaping me, but th- there is a, uh, a lot of quartz that is in the ground in that area. And there's also a lot of natural gas in Arkansas. You think about it borders Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana. That's oil and gas country in the U.S. And so, uh, and so there are people that think that, well, it may be static electricity from the quartz is interacting with the natural gas, and that's what causes these little flares. So there's lots of thinking about it. But the person who told me this week about it, he said they had a guide out there. Someone who had been there uh, several times. And they kept walking toward the light. And you can see it about a quarter mile away. And then you're a few hundred yards away. And then you're like a hundred feet away. And then the light is on and then it's off. And then next thing you know, as you're drawn toward that light... The guide says, now turn around. And they turn around. And the light was now behind them. They had gone past it. Danny Gregg is a youth minister at the Donaldson Church of Christ. Danny is, I'm guessing he's older than me. But every year I look forward to his class at Impact. Uh, Danny's a guy that you might not think of as your typical Church of Christ youth minister. He's, uh, he's got a, a gray ponytail about halfway down his back. And, and you know Danny's got stories to tell of his past. But what I love about Danny is his class. He teaches that class with his Bible in his hand. And he is using God's Word in a powerful and effective way. And Danny tells that when teenagers in his youth group at Donaldson begin dating that some of them will come to him and they will say, Danny, I'm entering into this relationship. I'm entering into this relationship and I want to know. And church, what are they going to ask? They ask, Danny, I want to know how far I can go. And isn't that what we often do, church, not just in dating, when some of us were younger, but we like to know where the line is that we're not supposed to cross. Now, I know some of you right now are thinking, oh, preacher, you were way too accident-prone to be pulling this off. Okay. The enemy wants you to focus on me falling rather than listening to what I have to say, okay? Because this is what we do, right? We put our toes as close to the edge as we can. But what we find out, church, is that that's impossible. 
It's impossible when we get that close to know where to stop. And pretty soon we realize that the line is behind us. And we have crossed over it. We buy into that lie that life is enjoyed in God's kingdom when we push it right up to the line. How can I flirt with sin without actually committing sin? And church, when we ask that question, we are asking the wrong question. Because the question we got to be asking is, how can I get as far away from that line as I possibly can? How can I get as far away from that? I'm not going to flirt with that line. Because we're drawn to that, whatever that is. We're drawn to that light. We're drawn to that, that shiny object. We're drawn to that which our heart desires. Even when we know we shouldn't be desiring that. And so, there we go, trying to toe the line. And if you've got a story to tell about trying to flirt with the line of sin and not sin, and that you managed not to cross it, I'm not kidding when I say I would love to hear that story. Because when you put your toes on that line, it becomes impossible to know where the line is. That we can only see the line when we're standing as far away from it as we possibly can. And church, sin is not something that we need to be in the habit of messing with. Because sin, as we discussed last week, is a very big deal. A big enough deal for Jesus to go to the cross and shed His blood to cover that sin. And oh, praise God that He did. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, what Jeff read earlier. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Don't buy into the lie because you are not alone. Don't buy into the lie that you're the only one. Don't buy into the lie that He won't forgive that. Because church family, Jesus shed His blood on the cross to cover a multitude of sins. And ultimately, when we question whether or not a sin that we have earnestly repented of has been forgiven... It's like saying, oh, I only wish Jesus would have shed more blood on that cross. No, church. He shed just the right amount of blood to cover the sins of all of humanity. If you're with us today and you have not yet put on Christ in baptism so that you can walk as that new creation 
as Paul mentioned in Ephesians 4, then why put it off? Why not let today be the day that you walk as a new person, as in newness of life? And if you're here today and you would appreciate the prayers of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ on your behalf for something that you might be dealing with right now, then we offer the invitation so that you can come and receive those prayers. Let's stand together and sing.